Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Whenever you and I make decisions in our daily lives, one of the questions we usually ask ourselves is, how am I going to pay for this? In 1861, expecting a short war, many people in the North and South were not troubled by this question, but it soon became paramount. The South never found an answer and lost the war, but the North succeeded, and in the process laid the groundwork for America's financial structure in the centuries that followed. Roger Lowenstein describes this process in Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet, and the Financing of the Civil War. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight uh, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but as always, not representing the university, not speaking for anybody else here, just myself and my guest, of course, will do the same as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. It is the third week now of March 2022. We're getting toward the home stretch of the spring semester. The basketball tournament is underway, the NCAA tournament. Uh, ECU is not in the tournament. Uh, I, they've never been in the tournament, to my knowledge. And uh, the last couple weeks ago, they fired their basketball coach. And the new guy they hired is an assistant from University of Tennessee who couldn't come to Greenville right away. He had to coach, help his team in the big tournament, which Tennessee was in, until last week when my... Uh, alma mater, University of Michigan, played Tennessee and upset them. 
So they did ECU a favor. Now assistant coach is done with that gig, and he can report to Greenville and get busy, see if he can get the team forward uh, while Michigan continues to, uh, to move on. We'll see how long that keeps going. Here on campus, the big news, I guess, this week is the installation of our new chancellor. It's actually been here a year. They don't install these people right away. I guess they want to make sure they're going to stay. Uh, but he's been here for a year, so we're having the installation ceremony uh, tomorrow on, on, in March uh, 24. And the thing about this is one of the features is a procession across campus, an academic procession of faculty in their academic regalia, just like at uh, at graduation, and I look for every opportunity to wear my regalia because my my parents generously bought me uh, the robe and and uh, the cap and gown when I I got my doctoral degree, and I, and I got it from Harvard University. I'm not sure I've mentioned that in the last 15 minutes, but uh, if you're a longtime listener, you might. You know, that was a daily feature in the original shows, reminding people of my Harvard degree. Uh, so I, I, I try to wear it as often as I can to try to you know, reduce the per-usage cost over time. Uh, also because it's spectacular or fabulous might be a better word. In, sometime in the 19th century, all the higher education institutions in the country agreed on a code of academic regalia. Everybody wears black gowns with a different color for the hoods, depending what kind of degree you have and what institution you went to. And they all agreed on this, with the exception of Harvard, because Harvard. Uh, Harvard's gowns are crimson, which is actually very light red, or as my wife describes it, uh, it, it's my pink dress. I will be wearing my pink dress tomorrow. And when they do the procession to inaugurate the new chancellor, uh, the faculty can go with their departments, but and as an alternative, they can also represent the department from which they got the institution from which they got their degree, if that institution is not sending a delegation. And you could be pretty sure Harvard has better things to do tomorrow than send someone down to Greenville to represent them. So I'm serving as the Harvard representative and the best part is th- th- we go in order uh, in the procession, in order of seniority. Uh, the oldest institution goes first, which means if all goes well, I will be first in line tomorrow as we process across campus. The last time we did this was some 10, 15 years ago for uh, uh, Chancellor Ballard. And I remember going up uh, as they were staging us to start and going up to the front of the line, like, I'm going to 1636, who's older than Harvard. And there's my colleague, Ken Wilburn, who taught African history. And Ken's standing there in front of me. And he's, oh, yeah, D. Phil, Oxford, you know, 11-something, who knows. Uh, He's got me beat by 500 years. So... I was a little put out, to, to put it mildly. Um, no, I mean, Ken and I were, were friends, so it was okay. But he has retired uh, since then. So I'm really counting on no one showing up from Cambridge or Oxford tomorrow and letting me, getting in the way of me going first in the procession. Uh, and then and then we, uh, we all sit down and there's a bunch of speeches. I will have to duck out and actually teach a class because I'm the procession's in the middle of a working day and I can't stay there Uh, but I'm looking forward to wearing the pink dress and representing Harvard should be fun Uh, 
Underneath the dress, I may well be wearing a Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt. Or I may not. I'll probably be wearing a shirt and tie. But you could be wearing a Civil War Talk Radio t-shirt. Those just got announced recently. Uh, You can find them at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Where you can also find out, thanks to the prompt work of Mark Gaffney, who's going to be on the show next. Uh, Next week, Jim Downs. The new editor of the journal Civil War History will be with us. He'll also talk about his recent book, Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. And in the month of April, a quick rundown, Mike Block will be here on the 6th with a book about the Battle of Cedar Mountain. Ernie Dollar returns to the show on the 13th with a book uh, called Hearts Torn Asunder, Trauma in the Civil War's Final Campaign in North Carolina. Just lined up, a book just got here from Naval Institute uh, on April 20th, Gene Eric Salaker. His new book is called Destruction of the Steamboat Sultana, the Worst Maritime Disaster in American History. And we'll finish up the month with our our friend Tim Talbot, uh, formerly of Pamplin Park, now with the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust, and we'll see what Tim is up to. So lots coming up. Don't forget also the Civil War Institute uh, at Gettysburg. Mention this show. Get a discount when you sign up. Uh, So much. But let's get to our guest tonight. Uh, There's there's a lot to talk about in the financing of the Civil War. Uh, Our guest is Roger Lowenstein. He has written numerous critically acclaimed books. uh, But this is the first one about the Civil War. We'll find out what he's doing there. Uh, Let's do it right now. Mr. Lowenstein, are you there? I am, I am. I'm thoroughly intimidated speaking to a Harvard man, but I'm certainly uh, here ready to talk about the Civil War with you. <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the intimidation factor, and I think it's, what, $2.80 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks? Not, um, not anymore, that, won't. Not I, the inflation we've had, which is, almost rivals that, the, the inflation we had in the Civil War, not quite, but we'll get into that, I hope. We're, we're sadly does seem to be going that direction. Um, I don't actually go to Starbucks, so I don't know what what those cost these days. But uh, but I'll take your word for it. Um, so you you have written books before. You are uh, an expert in economics, uh, but Civil War uh, a relatively new field. What brought you to writing about the, the Civil War? That's right. That's right. Well, my last book was a, a book about the history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, more my uh, uh, sort of typical sort of topic, and it was uh, specifically about the foundation of the central bank, the Federal Reserve, which got formed in the early 20th century. When I was doing that, um, I looked into the system that that the Fed had replaced, and I discovered that uh, it had been set up during the Civil War, the, the national banking system. And I was sort of curious that, see, in the middle of fighting the Civil War and you know, they didn't they have enough to do without starting a banking system. And as I looked deeper, I saw not only had they done that, but they had set up the first income tax and the first internal tax code and the forerunner of the Internal Revenue Service. And they created the first national currency, those the fabled greenbacks. And they had uh, signed the Homestead Act and the Transcontinental Railroad and the, the Morrill Act to create uh, land-grant colleges for middle-class kids so they could go to school even if they couldn't get into or pay for Harvard. And on and on. It turned out there had been a revolution in uh, finance and really in government and the conception of 
uh, not just the Jeffersonian, the government that governs least anymore, which is really what we've had uh, since the founders, but um, more, uh, you know, in the Hamiltonian concept, more the sort of government we think of today is responsible for the nation's prosperity and progress, and even for its individuals. So I, I just thought this was an untold part of the Civil War, and it was fascinating to me. It, it is a fascinating story, and, and I enjoyed reading this book and, and getting this take on it. Um, I know when I teach this section of the war, students are are, are taken aback by all the things that, that, that caught your attention. The idea that the United States, uh, for example, before the war did not have a national currency. So did people just carry sacks of gold around with them uh, in the 1850s? <laughs> well, you know, that was even in the, in the 1850s, that was considered inconvenient. They'd mm-hmm. usually leave their gold or silver or other assets at a bank. And the bank would give them a note, which was an IOU. You know, you gave them the gold, so they owe you the gold, they give you an IOU. And rather than every time you went to the store, the dry goods store or something, to buy something, to run back to the bank to get the note, to get the gold, the store would probably take your note. Because, you know, he probably did business with the same bank or a bank like it there. Mm-hmm. The trouble was, if you went across the state line or, or, or a couple of state lines, they didn't really want an IOU from a bank hundreds of miles away that maybe they never heard of that wasn't so good. So the system we had was really a non-system, was um, thousands of different banks and all the chartered under all the different states with their own different regulations or lacks of regulations. Some notes valued more, some less. And when you traveled, then you kind of had to take gold or silver or you had to be prepared to see your notes uh, discounted. Or not, or even not accepted. So it was so, the it was the financial equivalent of a whole lot of people in a room, each speaking a different language, trying to communicate with each other. It, it it wasn't much of a system for a country that, by the 1850s, was really industrialized. And given that the country's about to fight a war, clearly something has to be done. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with our guest, Roger Lowenstein. He's the author of Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet, and the Financing of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Roger Lowenstein, author of Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet, and the Financing of the Civil War. So we established in our first segment that uh, the United States has no national uh, currency before the war. Individual banks issue their own notes. But when the war starts, the federal government suddenly has this requirement to purchase things on a scale far in excess of anything uh, the country's ever done before. Roger, on, on page 44, you had a, a, a line of this book that was just summed up perfectly what I uh, uh, what, what I'm teaching again the finance of the war in, in one hour to to students. I would read that line because it was just right. Um, uh, I should have highlighted it here when the. Uh, uh, the, the, the Secretary of the Treasury Chase uh, faces the, the options how you're going to finance the war. You write, he could tax, he could borrow, or he could print money. The financial narrative of the war was essentially the story of how the opposing camps chose from among these alternatives. And that's really the essence. Uh, if, if you're going to pay for the war, you can tax, you can borrow, you can print. Uh, how How does... How, how does the country decide between these? How does Secretary Chase or President Lincoln decide, uh, let, let's do one of these three? So let's break it down a little bit. Sure. If you're uh, taxing, um, you're not uh, causing inflation because you're just taking wealth from one sector, the, the, the people you're taxing, the businesses and the individuals and so on, and you're mm-hmm. moving it over to the government side. Um, and if you're borrowing... Um, you're really doing the same thing. You're, 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 you're borrowing assets that other people are, are, are lending you for you know, a note to be paid later. And obviously inflation is different. And the, the key part about those three uh, ways of financing is that each of them, the way each is used affects the potency of the other two. So for instance, uh, if you tax, um, your credit will be viewed as uh, more secure and you'll be able to borrow um, uh, more easily. Uh, on the other hand, if you uh, overrun the printing press, uh, your credit will collapse, and um, you know no one's going to trust you and, and, and loan to you. Um, so the the now we're talking theoretically, but they didn't really have time for the theory because uh, <laughs> they were doing it on the fly. Uh, you know, the same way, in effect, the Ukrainians are doing it on the, on the fly right now. What happened in the Union was, in the beginning, of course, they didn't expect a long war, right? They didn't expect right. it would be that they would end up spending more money in those years than they had spent in all the years of the Republic until then, uh, the United States government. So uh, Secretary Chase did what every other uh, wartime secretary had done. He went to the banks and said, lend me your gold. And they weren't too happy about the amount he asked for, $50 million, but he, he got them to lend $50 million in, in gold coins. 
And when he did that, they had a dinner, and the head banker stood up and said, Mr. Secretary, you borrowed from us, you got some of $50 million. That should quite do it. That should satisfy your need to fight the war. Well, guess what? He ended up spending that 60 times over, 60 mm-hmm. times. So by the end of the first year of the war, which your listeners will know is 1861, the banks were tapped out and they shut the gold window. No more gold. So at this point, Chase and the Congress have to come up with something, and they don't have time for this fine theory of saying, well, number one is this, number two, number three. They have to get something fast. And the fastest thing they could do was print paper. And that that was the the origin, the famous greenback, um, the Legal Tender Act. And the significance of calling it legal tender was uh, it was money. It was legally money. And this, by the way, was shocking to people at the time. Even the Republicans, who were basically on board with everything that Chase wanted to do, were some of them were aghast at this. One of them said, uh, I, I protest. In fact, this is Fessenden, the head of the Senate Finance Committee, the most powerful financial legislator in the country, said, I protest against making anything but gold and silver a legal tender. This shocked the 19th century mind. We're used to it now. We're used to the idea that the paper in our, in our wallets is real money. It wasn't thought of then, but that was all they had. They, they didn't have time to create a banking system or a tax system in that kind of a hurry. And the, the greenbacks that they approved in the late February of 1862, uh, in effect, liquefied the Treasury and gave them a currency to start um, paying the troops and paying for supplies. But they had the... Um, uh, uh, recognition and the wisdom to realize that, that that wouldn't do it. They knew what had happened in the Revolutionary War, which was, you know, they passed out continentals and they became worthless. The same thing happened in the French Revolution uh, to their currency. So the uh, Congress, particularly Thaddeus Stevens, head of the Ways and Means Committee then, insisted that uh, the government back up its greenbacks with something more substantive. And that was that was number two. That was a taxation system. And we hadn't had a, a system of taxation. All we'd had was a tariff, a tax on external trade. Thus, when they created the tax system, it was known as internal revenue. This was going to be taxes on Americans, on services, on income, excise taxes. And somebody said it was a, a tax on everything on the earth, and someone else rejoined it was actually a tax on everything on the earth and under the earth. Everything that moved, the Civil War government taxed. Uh, it was quite revolutionary for the time, but it gave um, some tangible substance behind what would have otherwise just been a, a paper mill. Um, and that, uh, that allowed them in stage three to go out to something um, even more prolific, which was to borrow from the people. Uh, the banks, remember, they were tapped out. But uh, Salmon Chase recognized, with the help of Jay Cook, the financier, that the American people, uh, if they trusted the government's credit, uh, could be, um, in a sense, a whole other army. And uh, Chase and Cook went town to town, village to village, uh, selling uh, government bonds. It was, a, it was the biggest investment banking campaign in, in the United States history, world history at that time. And it really gave the North uh, an implacable edge, something the South uh, couldn't approach. And it was really thanks to the fact that they hadn't just relied on paper, but that um, they'd shorn it up with real assets, with with, uh, with tax revenue. 
the the idea of paper as uh, you know as as money as you point out was was discredited by the experience of the continentals uh, and and chase himself who whose roots are in the democratic party uh, that's the party of Andrew Jackson, the anti-bank, anti-national bank party. Uh, yeah, they regard all this. Very worried about inflation. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, they they regard any any paper money as uh, you know a dangerous experiment. I, that I, it's kind of interesting again when teaching is to see how these these attitudes survive among the students when I will uh, you know offer them uh, something for ten dollars or I offer them something for a note. I'll just write it on a piece of paper. I'll give you ten dollars. Uh, will you take this? And they're much more skeptical about that. But greenbacks essentially are 0% notes when they're issued. There's the expectation that the greenbacks will eventually be redeemed for gold at some unknown future point. Chase doesn't say this is our permanent currency, does he? No, but but by law they were permanent, and Mm -hmm. there was no redemption date and no interest. And that was also something that that shocked the people that that um, you're going to give us paper uh, and it's not going to it's not going to pay interest today we don't think about the fact that the George Washingtons in our wallet don't pay interest it's money right but uh, back then as one of the congressmen said uh, paper is no more money than a contract to deliver flour as flour itself it's just a promise for money so this is sort of a leap towards the 20th century no, no, the, the paper's not a promise to pay money anymore. It's actual money. Now, in fact, people expected that the greenbacks uh, would be brought back to gold, would be redeemed for gold after the war. And that's why they pretty much trusted them. Uh, and uh, for that reason, every time the, the, the greenback traded uh, as much or more on the war news, at least in the short term, as on, um, say, the rate of inflation, so if the Union uh, uh, took a couple of hits in the battlefield, that would suggest to traders that the war was going to go on for a longer time than they suspected, which meant that the ultimate day of redemption was going to be further off, and the greenback price against gold would fall. And if the Union won a, a few battles, they'd say, oh, redemption's coming. So I guess the greenbacks should be valued pretty close to gold because it's going to be redeemed sooner. But in fact, there was no legal... Uh, a guarantee to, to, to redeem it. And um, after the war, of course, this became uh, uh, you know, a, a, a terribly controversial issue where farmers, uh, people in the South, people had commodities who wanted a little bit of inflation, very much behind the greenback. They wanted more greenbacks. Uh, bankers, uh, people who were creditors, uh, were against inflation. Uh, they very much wanted to redeem the greenbacks and go back to the gold standard so that the only paper out there was paper backed by gold, which meant there wasn't a lot of paper. And this became uh, a terribly divisive issue in the 1870s and 80s and 90s uh, with William Jennings Bryan and the Cross of Gold. In the Civil War, I think uh, under duress of wartime and and given the patriotism that that wars uh, at least hopefully generate, if the cause is, is, is widely accepted, uh, the greenback was not so controversial. In fact, it was accepted. In fact, to the uh, extreme distress of Jefferson Davis, it even traded in the South. Uh, and, and, and the Confederacy passed a law against it. Nonetheless, Southern merchants uh, were no fools. They knew that uh, the greenback 
uh, was a was a better piece of paper, more valuable piece of paper than the uh, notes issued by the Confederate Treasury. And they, you know, it, it takes a lot of patriotism to convince a, a merchant to take a bad note instead of a good one, and they couldn't do it in the South. No, the the. Um not knowing when these notes, the, these greenbacks would be redeemed, uh, reminds me of it. There was there was a, a saying at the time, a joke at the time. Uh, uh, why are the greenbacks like the Jews? The answer being, uh, they're the children of Abraham, and they know not when their redeemer cometh. Um, it's a long uh, way for the Messiah. Yeah, if you you could. Do that. Uh, so the. Uh, the, the, the southern merchants, as you point out, in the border states would, would be happier to accept a greenback uh, than, than a Confederate note. And while while your your book is focused on the northern government, and that's the subtitle, you do discuss the southern economy and, and how they approach the same problem. They've got to pay for the war, too. Uh, and they've got those same three options, taxing, printing, or uh, borrowing. Uh, they They don't do nearly as well, though. No, I think the South... Um first part suffered from um, a collective uh, delusion. Uh, when South Carolina, of course, the first state to secede, uh, a voter for secession, 189 to zero, it was not a close vote. Uh, one of the uh, last unionists in Charleston observed that his state was really too small for a republic, uh, but, uh, he lamented, too large for an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the South thought that uh, uh, there wasn't going to be any war. Uh, they were just going to secede, and, and, and that was it. Um, uh, because, of course, and, and, and this has reminded me recently, I've thought of this very much recently, as we've read the news about uh, Russia and Ukraine, and the hold that uh, Vladimir Putin seems to think that uh, his oil and energy assets gave him over Europe and NATO, and particularly over Germany, since they were the main supplier of fossil fuels to Germany. Um, the, the South very much suffered from a, an equivalent delusion. You remember the comment of Senator Hammond in, in the U.S. Senate, when he was senator from South Carolina, cotton is king, uh, no one dares lay a hand against it. When the war starts, Judah Benjamin, uh, the attorney general of Jefferson Davis, suggests that they ship a whole lot of that cotton over to England right away. The sea lanes are still open, the Union Navy is very small, and that will allow them to finance as long as a war well, at, least, at least a very long war. That suggestion is shot down. Uh, the rest of Jefferson's counsel, his cabinet, in effect says, it's not going to be any long war. In fact, there's hardly going to be a, a war. Uh, and Leroy Walker, the, uh, uh, the Secretary of War, said, uh, if there's any blood to be shed, I'll wipe it clean with my handkerchief, with my handkerchief. The South was so deluded about the, um, in effect, blackmailing power of its cotton that it hit on a counter-scheme, which was to withhold its own cotton from Europe. And the idea then was that uh, England and France would be so devastated by the loss of their raw material for their textiles industries, and textiles were the the fossil fuels of the 19th century, they were the heart of the Industrial Revolution, that these European countries would force the war uh, to cease, would force a ceasefire. How exactly England and France were going to affect this across the ocean, if indeed they would want to, the South never figured out. It was a, a colossal mistake. Um, and and cotton, of course, was their only source of hard currency. After some months, uh, in a de facto way, they realized that strategy wasn't working. But now it wasn't so easy to ship cotton because the Union blockade 
was beginning. In the beginning, they didn't catch uh, many ships, but they made it more difficult to ship. You had to ship in uh, small runners from a from a Confederate port to an island port, and then offload onto a larger ship under the British flag that could cross the Atlantic. This was risky. Uh, it was cumbersome. You usually had to go at night. So the, the amount of cotton that got over uh, was a fraction of, um, of what had gotten over uh, pre-war. Um, what about taxing? The South was anathema. Well, let, let, me, let me ask, can I ask you a question about yeah. cotton while sure, we're still sure. on that? The, uh, in 1863, the Erlanger uh, cotton bonds that are issued, essentially the, the Confederate government does what they should have done initially. They, they, they capitalize their cotton, uh, although they can't ship it overseas. They, they're, they're basically they're telling the investors, you can have the cotton after the war, or if you can get it out through the blockade, it's yours. And they, they get a surprisingly right. – I was surprised by how much demand there was for those bonds. Uh, even as late as 1863, they were still able to finance their effort with the promise of cotton. It was, it was remarkable. Uh, so the South had a problem that, that uh, Europe wanted the cotton, but they couldn't get it basically. or couldn't get it in, in bulk till after the war. But the South needed the money now. So an investment banker uh, named Erlanger, and, and uh, he was a French representative of a German uh, investment house, uh, did what bankers do. They, they solved that sort of here-now arbitrage-type problem and said, look, uh, we'll give you the money now for a promise of the cotton later. We know it's going to be worth a lot. Uh, but the South, um, you know, it never missed an opportunity to do um, the wrong thing from its own uh, viewpoint. The first thing... Elanger wanted to lend millions and millions, and um, uh, Jefferson Davis and his uh, his Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Memminger, put a limit on $15 million. I was never able to figure out why they put this limit on. Elanger um, pleaded with them to take more. In fact, he ran the blockade to Richmond to try to convince them to take more, um, and they wouldn't. They held it at $15 million. When the offering so that, was, uh, when the bonds were offered, and they were offered in, in London, Paris, and Amsterdam, and Germany, throughout Europe, they were a sensational hit. Uh, because if you looked at the nominal amount of the worth of the bonds, uh, you'd be paid back way more. Because they gave you, um, in effect, uh, they gave you the, the current price of the cotton, which was sky high. So and, you, and, you'd, you'd get a really that good would deal be. if you could. If yeah, you could get it now. I just, we have, Roger, it we now. have, to, step, I have yes. to step in and take another short break now. Uh, we'll come back in just a minute. We'll talk more about uh, financing the war. Uh, that's the subject of the book, Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War, written by our guest tonight, Roger Lowenstein. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today. 
today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Roger Lowenstein, author of Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet, and the Financing of the Civil War. In our last segment, we were talking about the Confederacy's less successful attempts at finance, which, uh, as we all know, culminate in the hyperinflation of 1864, 1865. Uh, Roger, there, there's you describe that uh you know, wonderfully in this book, there, there's so much in here. Uh, I, we have to kind of skip around just to fit things in the hour that we have. And I, I definitely want to ask you about the topic you mentioned got you started on uh, looking into this, which is the origin of the national banking system. Uh, as you said in the first segment, in before the war, the United States has no national system, just a bunch of local state banks issuing their own notes. Uh, you can look back to before Andrew Jackson, the United States had a national bank, have a single bank issue its notes. They serve as a national currency. Chase doesn't go to that route. Uh, he comes up with a system in, well, what does he come up with as a banking system and why? They had, you know, a certain amount of assets, their capital and so on. Not only that, they would have to invest a portion of their capital in U.S. bonds. That was a, um, uh, that's what really would give assurance to investors or just people holding the notes that the notes would be good. And then the government would issue uh, a note that on one side would have the picture of the bank and the other side would be uniform, just just a, a national bank note, uh, so that regardless of what state you were in, you would be using the same note, backed by the assets of the individual bank, but secured by bonds of the United States. So they were really a hybrid now, uh, I don't want to get more into the details, and you can hear already how complicated it is, but if you go to many cities today, even today in old bank buildings, you'll see chiseled into the, uh, into the architecture, First National Bank, of Second National Bank, of Third National Bank, and so on. What's remarkable to me is that this system cobbled together uh, during the Civil War when Chase had so much else going on, such a... A terrible burden, as I said, is financing a, a greater expenditure than ever been spent cumulatively in the history of the public. He, he um, designed this system, and it turned out to be very good. It, um, it lasted until 1913, when the Federal Reserve effectively replaced it. But um, 
national banknotes, they were uniform. They gave the country, the, no matter what state you were going to or coming from, the same currency. The failure rate, unlike the old state bank system, was very low. Um, and it, it um, I think it really propelled the United States uh, in the, during the Gilded Age to the front rank of industrial nations and to uh, the front rank of, of financial industrial nations. So that by the time World War I uh, came along, we were ready to uh, supplant England as uh, the financial capital of the world. It really is a remarkable story that this this comes out of the war. Uh, another thing you mentioned uh, at the top of our, our talk today was the, the other things that the 37th Congress uh, created during the war that that you know James McPherson and others have argued was was tantamount to a second American Revolution. Uh, the the Homestead Act, the Morrill uh, Land Grant Colleges, the uh, uh, yes, this, Transcontinental this, um, Railroad and so on. It, it, just remarkable. You know, I think you, you can call it that. You can call it, as I do, uh, almost a counter-revolution because it was mm-hmm. so counter to the Jeffersonian uh, philosophy, you know, government that governs least. There had been six uh, presidents prior to Lincoln who had vetoed legislation uh, for uh, railroads or canals or roads. You, you couldn't get anywhere in the United States. You know, there were these muddy roads. Uh, transportation in such a vastly big country was uh, so vital. Where would we be today had Eisenhower not built a national highway system? And the um, the political consciousness at the time, until the, until the Lincoln government, the Republicans came in 1860, was just against it. They kept uh, vetoing it. And Lincoln took time. In his first address to Congress, which is July 4th, 1861, a special session, uh, he called them in, of course, to raise money and raise men. But he reminded them of the, what he called the leading object of government is to elevate the condition of men. Uh, and to Lincoln, that meant roads, it meant schools, it meant a credible banking system, it meant a universal currency, it meant all the things that the government could do uh, to provide opportunity for people, particularly people like himself uh, who'd risen up. Uh, the economic ladder, and that was a, you know, uh, that was, in effect, we all remember that Lincoln, of Lincoln's dedication to the Union, but mm-hmm. some of us forget the purposes for which he insisted on the Union's preservation, and he really thought it would be a beacon of opportunity, uh, and and this um, this whole penalty of Civil War bills uh, demonstrated. Well, you, I mean, you make the point that Lincoln and Chase and many of the other people you talk about, Thaddeus Stevens here, are all uh, you know classic self-made uh, people of the 19th century. They're not descendants of great wealth, and that the idea of a, a country, a system that gives that kind of opportunity, allows a person. As Lincoln says, is the, 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 the man can Very make true. himself they, here. They were not powdered wigs. They were not slave owners. They weren't people who uh, most of them had. Uh, I looked. I think only one of the of the leading Republicans had ever been to Europe. But, you know, most of them were completely unfamiliar with the gilded life that uh, you know Adams and the, the Jefferson and so on. And, you know, Franklin knew in the, in the Revolutionary period. Um, these were hard scrabble people. Uh, uh, Justin Morrill, one of my favorites, the the congressman from Vermont, uh, son of a blacksmith. He was a store clerk. He made some good investments. 
Uh, and then he, he ran and, and served many terms in Congress. But the Morrill Act to create these uh, land-grant colleges was his. Mm-hmm. He'd always regretted his inability to go to college. And, um, you know, just a, a, a classic uh, Republican ethos, this idea that um, uh, he, he understood the need for it because out of his personal experience. You know, Lincoln uh, was devoted to the idea of a uh, of a currency that circulated more widely. Lincoln had clerked in a store that, as he put it, winked out, that failed. Mm-hmm. He understood it. He had driven teams of oxen over those muddy roads. He knew the need uh, for a better transportation system. Uh, so th- these um, this came uh, from personal experience from uh, many, many of the Republican um, leaders. And the contrast you draw with the southern economy, uh, that once the greenbacks are in place, once the uh, loans have been made and the federal government has a circulating medium that allows them to, to buy what they need, to pay the soldiers, to do the things they need to do, you contrast that with the, the southern economy is so rigid, so illiquid. Uh, it's very wealthy, but it's all land slaves, yes, it was, essentially it was, those two the, assets. The, the planters, um, until the very end, refused to allow any taxes of, of, of land and slaves, which is where the wealth was. Um, they had uh, frustrated efforts to industrialize before that, so they were uh, you know, in a bad way when the war started, I think, uh, due to this delusion about um, uh, you know, what they expected would be the strength that uh, uh, cotton would give them. Um, and they, um, you know, they believed that the common man would fight for them, even though the common man um, uh, didn't own any slaves. He really had no economic stake in the ethos of the Confederacy. And, of course, for a long time, uh, he did. The, the Confederate soldiers were astonishingly brave. But mm-hmm. as, they, as the word began to get to the front lines, the people on the home front were starving. Uh, there was a trickle of desertions and more desertions and more and more desertions. It's, it's very hard to get people to fight young men to fight um, when their wives and mothers and sisters uh, are starving. In Richmond in 1863, the women finally uh, broke into the depositories of of grain. There was a a flower. There was a a riot through the streets, and Davis himself had to come out and try to calm the crowd because the people were hungry. Um, That's a hard way to fight the war. There was uh, there was a line I, I disagreed with. I was reading uh, through this where you you mentioned I think it's sort of offhand. Uh, civil liberty restrictions were relatively milder in the South than the North, and I I'm not sure that's true even for white Southerners. I th- I think they were more strict, but uh, but. Uh, and I would actually defend that with the evidence you provided uh, later in the book when you talk about the tax in kind on, on southern farmers or the impressment of southern goods, uh, where just as you just said, the, the, the middle class, the poor in the south, find their, their goods being taken away on behalf of this war for the planters. Um, it's not surprising. Yeah, the, that, the, that, um, that, well, the, the uh, reference to civil liberties was... Uh, I was using the literal sense of all those people that uh, Lincoln and Seward put in jail. In fact, um, a third of the well, I, I would take issue. I don't, I don't think there were that many jail. myself, um, based based on Mark Neely's research. I, I would argue. I, mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a classic. Uh, you do see that a lot, but I I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's that holds up as well. But that, that's a very much a side issue. We're nearly at the end of our time, and I just want to say how much I enjoyed reading this. Um, 
because uh, a lot of us spend a lot of time reading about the Civil War, but uh, uh, economics and finance are not what we know. And to have someone explain it as clearly and uh, succinctly as as you do in this book is a real service. Uh, Listeners, if you're curious about where the greenbacks came from, uh, where the national banking system uh, of that era came from, uh, or many of these other questions, uh, this book, Ways and Means, Lincoln and His Cabinet and the Financing of the Civil War, will help answer those questions for you. Uh, the authors are uh, our guest tonight, Roger Lowenstein. Uh, Roger, I really enjoyed reading this book. Thanks very much for uh, coming on the show to talk about it. Jerry, it is such a pleasure to talk to a guy who is such an expert in the Civil War. Uh, terrific show. Well, well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.